This recording is a production of Faith Builders Educational Programs. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2018, held at Faith Builders on July 31 to August 3. A few years back, Bank of America was struggling with burnout in its call centers. They brought in Ben Weber to do a sociometric analysis, which found that workers were highly stressed and that the best reliever of stress was time spent together away from their desk. Weber recommended aligning team members' schedules so they shared the same 15-minute coffee break every day. He also had the company buy nicer coffee machines and installed them in more convenient gathering places. The effect was immediate, a 20% increase in productivity and a reduction turnover from 40% to 12%. Weber also has also overseen interventions in company cafeteria, merely replacing four-person tables with 10-person tables has boosted productivity, productivity by 10%. I know that's a business, not a school, but I want to emphasize by that little story the importance of detail. Culture is a composite of details. It's in the detail. I think we all find it a little difficult to get, get a hold of this. What is culture? What creates culture? What are all the components? It's so many little things coming together that creates the culture. So we want to divide this into three categories today. Spiritual, academic, and social. You have a handout that you can fill in. I have a few blanks. I don't want you to be distracted by writing a lot of things down, but you can jot a few things in as we go. So by way of definition, let's give this. It is the hidden curriculum or persona which shapes and influences every aspect of school life. It is the atmosphere or climate of the school no one has ever asked you, what curriculum do you use for your culture? We talk about curriculum a lot. What do you use for math and science and what's the best curriculum? But there's not a curriculum. But we can use the word hidden curriculum to try to understand it. It's the smell of your school. Can you smell it when you walk into schools? Pretty quickly. I've been in, of course, many different classrooms, and I can remember being in one classroom, and I just hope I didn't sneeze or cough or anything. It was so quiet. I was uncomfortable as a visitor. And the teacher was quietly talking, and the students all sat there so meekly. I, I don't know how they get those students, but I, I was uncomfortable. I could hardly wait to leave because well, I just breathed quietly. And I've been in other classrooms where it was quite the opposite. I remember seeing a teacher up front, he had his cup of coffee, which is all right, maybe, and he was sipping it once in a while and said something about, okay, well, you know, taxes, you know, what a bummer. We gotta pay taxes in the United States government. Another sip of coffee and, and oh, it was, of course, the students responded to that restlessness. A nurse one time from the state visited our school and she referenced having just come from another school and she said, I just walked in and I, I was so uncomfortable. She said, it was just not very friendly and stiff. And I was a nurse just walking into a school that quickly. 
decided how she felt. All right, so it shapes all components of school. So important, the details, and I want you to think about that, the little details that are making up your school culture. All right, it's a result of the school's beliefs, history, perceptions, attitudes, practices, traditions, and relationships. We could add more words to this. So it's a composite of all these things. And I want you to think of something in particular. And that is simply the history. There is nothing like a cultureless school. Your school has a culture. I hope you didn't come today thinking, we ought to get a culture in our school. That's something I don't think we have. <laughs> well, you know better. Now, unless you're going into a brand new school that's just been organized. And, but still, there's history of what those families have experienced. So when you go into a school, if you're going into a new school, or as a new teacher into this school, remember, there's a culture already in place. And you are just one small part of that culture. So all the things that have been happening, the attitudes, the beliefs, the traditions, the practices, they've been going on long before you got there. And you're stepping into a culture that is very much entrenched already. So that can be discouraging because of this next point. It's the parents, the students, the teachers, administration, board, and local community each uniquely contribute to the school culture. You're just the teacher. You're one of this whole list. That is encouraging in some ways, you're not solely responsible to shape the culture of your school. It is discouraging in the components of the culture that you wish you could change that you can't. And I'm not sure what to say about that. You need to, and I'm going to say this carefully, at the end of the day, you need to know if you can work in the culture that you are already in. All right? There are some things that you cannot change, at least not quickly. And sometimes teachers are very frustrated because, well, that's not how we did school. And you carry that with you into where you're teaching, maybe a significantly different culture than what you had your schooling, and you think these things should be changed, and they should be changed now. Well, those parents were there before you were possibly the administration, the board, the local community. These things are well in place. You come into that. You need to step into the culture that is already there. Sometimes people cannot do that. It's just not them. It's not a culture they can be their best and do well in. Now, does that mean you can't change anything? Well, across time, and winning the trust of the community, of the patrons. Slowly, culture does change, but this is not flipping switches. It's not like changing curriculum from Saxon to Rod and Staff or to CLE or to Bob Jones, that one day this all looks different. This is a slow, careful change if it does change. 
So I'm not, again, not really sure what to say about that because that to me can feel discouraging. But it's a reality. And the frustration of trying to change it too fast, too quickly. So there are things that change, and you, but you must earn the right to change them. Do you understand what I'm saying? You must earn the right to change them. And remember, whatever you change can be seen by somebody as a reflection on what was being done before. You understand what I'm saying? So why don't we do this? Somebody who helped shape your culture previous to your arrival wanted it the other way, and they're listening. Maybe it's previous administration or another teacher. And when they hear of the changes that you want to bring, they can take that very, very personal. Maybe not even wish you well, because you're changing things that that's how we've been doing it. Who do you think you are anyhow can be their attitude. So remember, good ideas does not just give you a right to go in and change things. It might be, but across time, those changes certainly might happen. But it needs to be part of, you, you need to bring the people with you. You need to bring the administration, the parents with you as much as you can. And when you can't bring them along, either it won't change or you need more time and patience. <clears throat> All right. A healthy school culture, which is what we want, of course, encourages and energizes students to grow and thrive spiritually, academically, and socially. This is an obvious statement. We all want a culture that the students do well in. That's ultimately the purpose of our schools, is to educate them, to grow them. So anything in our culture that is hurting that, we want to deal with, identify, and change. But again, I want to keep calling us to the fact that we are just one part, though very integral, we are just one part of the culture. And we can shape it from that one platform as a teacher, but the other platforms are sometimes feel very much out of our control. All right, what I'd like to do is I'd like to look at some very obvious, this is what we want, but then I want to look spend more time on the word intentional, or the thought intentional. Here are some ways that we can be intentional about getting this done. So I'm not gonna spend much time on this slide. We, I'm sure we all say, we want the fear of God that produces reverence and obedience. These are values we all hold. We want these part of our culture. We want a love for truth and a respect for holy things. We're disturbed when we don't see that. We want a spirit of humility and servanthood in our students, not arrogance and selfishness, which is so innate to us, all of us. We want spiritual growth and maturity. So now let's look at some intentional things. What can we do to make this happen as a teacher in our schools? I'm sorry, I missed the last note. We want respect for authority. All right. Focus on the presence of God and His standard of holiness. Teachers, we are a Christian school. Sometimes, I think we all may vacillate on this. 
well, school's about academics. So let's just, you know, let's get in there, teach the academics. We tend to compartmentalize when we do this. Let's just focus on getting it done and learning well. And then, other, well, but we're a Christian school. We have that huge part of our culture. And I think increasingly, I just feel like we must be distinctly Christian in our schools. We have nothing to apologize for. We're a Christian school. We talk about God's presence. We talk about the Bible. We memorize scriptures. We are intentionally developing their spiritual lives, even though most of our time is spent in the academics. We should even care more about the spiritual health of our students than the academic. All right? Don't you stay awake more at night concerned about the spiritual health of your students than figuring out the academics? So we should care deeply about what is happening spiritually with our students and pray and care about that. Focus on the presence of God. Talk about it with our students. God is here. God is welcome into our classroom. We want to live under his blessing and presence and bring that to their attention throughout the day, regularly, easily. His standard of holiness. Identify and respectfully confront attitudes and discussions that undermine biblical values. I find this one to be a hard one. I wonder what you do. I would like you to say some things here. How do you, what do you feel are some wise ways of handling things that are accepted possibly in your community and are kind of in the culture that you feel uncomfortable with? You feel it is undermining the spiritual development of your students. Or tell me some things you don't think you should do. I know you're on the spot here. Yes. Well, I don't like whenever students come to school and tell me that you know their parents have this other idea about how we should be doing something. Um, I prefer for parents to come to me <laughs> and you know address it at that level. So in, in some sense, if the children are discussing something that I'm uncomfortable with, I don't want to send a message to the parents through the children. I know they're under my control, but if, if it's a problem I have with the home or the community, then I should probably address it at that level instead of you know, make sure y'all do it this way here at school mm -hmm. and the parents get that feedback. Um, teachers like it. And that's how I feel. One help, one way. Very good. Thank you. Somebody else. true. The children are often living out the talk that's going on at the supper table the night before. Their attitudes, activities. Okay, so let's be careful, teachers, that you do not say things that confuses the student and makes them decide, who am I loyal to? Am I loyal to my parents or am I loyal to the teacher? 
Have you ever had a parent say, well, what you say goes. I mean, if I, it, it, it's, well, the teacher said this. Well, that might be on small talk, and that's one thing. But if it is about values, we better be very, very careful. All right, so we have nothing to apologize again for. We're a, we're a Christian school, and you might have students in your school that come from backgrounds that are significantly different than what your church group or your board holds as values. That gets more complex. We have nothing to apologize for, and we teach what we believe about various doctrines, how we should live. But be careful that you're, not, that you're sensitive to not hitting on areas where you know the parents believe a lot different, and you hold this up as this is right, and cause that child to sit there and say, maybe mom and dad are wrong. Hey, maybe the teacher's right. I'm not sure really what to do with that, because sometimes there is a big difference between what you believe and a particular family believes. But be sensitive to that, and particularly sensitive when they ask you a question that you know strikes at this issue. So what do you believe about whatever? Maybe it's an activity. Those are easy ones to use, right? What do you believe about going to? I'm not going to give examples. And you personally feel like, wow, that's beyond the pale. I mean, but you know they do this. Well, there's your moment to launch into some good teaching. (laughs) But that child is going to sit there and say, do I believe the teacher? Do I believe the parent? Just be careful how you handle that. So what about language? To use a fairly easy one. What about language that you do not want in your school and you know full well this is the vocabulary at home? Well, you know what the child's going to tell you, right? Oh, my parents say that all the time. Really? Wow, that's terrible. You mean your dad's a church member, right? I think we need to simply respond with, well, you know what? What your parents decide they do at home is what your parents decide. That's up to them. But when you're here at school, I'm asking you not to say that. That's how I would, I would can you work with that? Okay, thank you. So you're still calling them out. You're still shaping the behavior without reflecting on the home. So that the child, sure, they're gonna say, well, Maybe the teacher, maybe that, well, we shouldn't be saying that. But you didn't call them to that evaluation by saying, really? And and making them feel insecure in their home. You understand what I'm saying by that? Are there any other comments on that? Because I know you're hearing me on one side saying one thing, the other side I'm saying the other. We do confront it, but never reflect directly on the authority of the home. We can't reach into that. Yes? Mm-hmm. Uh, or sometimes uh, explaining what the school requires as a program. And specifically when I know that uh, this would be a difference with the students' parents or church, mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. to say, and I, I usually just bring that right out the open up front. I know that your church does something different or your parents do this other thing. Um, 
And, uh, and, and I try to say, I, I disagree with that, and I'll explain why, but um, I'm not saying um, that your parents are wicked. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying that your church is radical. Um, this is a disagreement I have, let me explain. And, um, and if, uh, if your parents or your church disagree with that, I can still respect them. Mm -hmm. But this is what I think. Okay, thank you. And, and I thought students are very um, receptive to that. Mm -hmm. Yes. That's a good. <laughs> it's a good question. When children pressure other children that, wow, you shouldn't be doing that or that's wrong, especially like you said in the health questions like that. And I, I think we need to just step in and do what you said. Look, what your family does is okay. Every family can decide how they're going to do different things. That's what your family does. You don't want people mocking you or saying that's not the right way to do it. And so respect. You want that respect, give that respect to other people. And I know, depending on the ages, it's hard to explain all of that. But I think just shutting off the conversation and say, we're just not going to talk about these issues at school or get into an argument. And the parents probably wouldn't be so proud of their child saying these things at school. <laughs> but yes, were you going to say something? I was thinking in relation to if I'm going to call out Sometimes it's easier to, to make a statement saying that this is incorrect if, if that language is not in keeping with the rest of the culture. Mm -hmm. Or the church has said, we are, we are not going to do this. Mm -hmm. you know, then it's not just me. It's also saying, you know, right. the other students here mm -hmm. also do not believe this is appropriate. The church has said this is mm -hmm. not mm -hmm. appropriate. Okay. Thank you. So it's not just your personal. You're trying to support what general culture. And see, here again, we got a difference of church schools, where the, the culture is more defined and tighter, less variety. So the few families from other churches, possibly, they know that they're kind of fitting into this culture than a Christian board-run community type of school, where there's a lot more diversity, and there's not really an anchoring point quite as much. Both have their advantages and disadvantages, but this discussion's pretty broad. All right, I would just come back to Let's make sure that we're not stealing the heart of the child, the loyalty from the parent, and making that child feel insecure in the authority of the parent. Emphasize that all truth is God's truth. This is just a simple statement. But it, I think, helps to generate a respect for everything we're studying. God created language. I don't think he created all the rules of the English language, but God created language. God created the world that we're studying and a sense of respect that we are studying and observing God's creation and the laws that God put into place. Give opportunity to be involved in spiritual activities. I would again like some input. What are some things you've done to intentionally give your students a chance 
to be involved in spiritual activity as a way to just create that tone. We are Christian school. We do Christian things here. We're not just a, we're not a public school because it's dangerous or because there's drugs there or because they teach evolution. It's not just a protection. It is a provision. All right? Our schools are not just a protection. They are a provision. And we want to maximize. Can you give me a few things you might do that you think keeps calling your students to that God awareness? Yes? Okay. And there was something that you could bring into the culture of your classroom that was safe. The teacher can do that, probably didn't raise a lot of questions outside of your room. Maybe some settings it would, and then you would need to be careful, of course, and respectful of that. But thank you. So getting them to pray. What else? Yes? I have a friend who did that, and we do the same thing in our school, have students have devotions. But one of my friends said, he did this, and the, the boy just went on and on and on and on. And he said, hey, it won't get me to have devotions again right away. You know, wreck the next class or two. Well, and we got another problem, don't we? Now we got a manipulation and disrespect for holy things by going on and on and on. So, um, brace yourself. Shape it when you do those things. You have 10 minutes or whatever. Most students won't do that. Different cultures, again, different students do things differently. Anything else quickly on this? Take them on a mission trip. We did that one year. We took them. We lived actually not real far from here. I taught uh, an earring, so we went to Buffalo. We took some parents, board members, and teamed them up, get out on the streets, handed out tracts, talked to people. It's just a little activity that they really enjoyed. And of course, you can spend some time talking about the needs of people, sharing Christ with other people before you would do those activities. All right, well, let's move on to academic. Again, some things we certainly um, understand. We want a respect for all studies and publishers. And so just a little word here. Those teachers who long to teach um, just science and math, those of you who do that, it is fine. I don't condemn it whatsoever. But I think a beautiful thing of needing to teach all the classes is you are exemplifying to your students that you can enjoy and do well in all the subjects. And if you are a teacher that just is in a larger school and you just are a content teacher or certain subjects that you teach, to not say, oh, I'm glad I don't have to teach English. Whew. Well, your students, they're heading for English class. So be careful. 
with that. Respect for all studies and publishers, even though, again, you might um, have the things that you focus on and you enjoy. That's a setting that is quite fine. I know one teacher who said, rotten staff, RNS, that stands for rotten stuff. That is shameful. Number one, that's not true. But secondly, you're going to destroy your school with that kind of an attitude. You might have discussions about pros and cons, but always with respect. Healthy competition. We're going to look at this one in shortly. I'm just, we all agree. We like this. Healthy competition and a high standard of excellence. Of course, we want excellence. All right. What are some things we can do to be intentional in relation to these three points? I somewhat alluded to this already. Where the teacher must master the materials. Listen, this is one reason why teachers sometimes feel like they should quit. Please listen to me. <laughs> Don't quit <laughs> quite yet. <laughs> so the overwhelming feeling of just, I can hardly master. I'm teaching beyond my level. We've all, most people have experienced that. Teaching algebra, but I never had algebra in school. I'm teaching biology, but I never had biology. Or I'm teaching world history, I know nothing of it. Your goal must be, across the years, to master the material. If you're going to have a school that is a school of excellence. But that's not done in one year and accept that. And it makes me um, sad to think of teachers who are frustrated because of the academic, they can't quite get a hold of it, and well, I guess I'll just go quit and do something that I know how to do well, and I can get it done well. Well, God might call you away from teaching. It might not be your thing. I, I'm understanding of that. But remember, this is a process as you master material. And, but don't go to the other side where I hear sometimes uh, students say, well, you know what? Our teacher didn't understand algebra, and he just said, we're just not going to really do it. I can hardly believe that that happens in schools. Or my teacher just hated writing, so we just, never, we just never had to write. We just skipped all the composition lessons. No, I'm not talking about that. You're giving it your best, but you're still getting your rest, as we talked about in another class. You're still taking care of yourself, but, you're, but you even tell your students, I don't have this completely mastered this year. I hope to the next time. We're going to give it our best here. If you're being honest that you're struggling with some things. The goal is mastery. It's not all going to happen in one year. But you don't swing to the other side and say, I just don't enjoy this subject, so ah, I think the board will be okay. We just won't do those lessons. I, I don't think we should do that either. All right. Competition must be inspiring, not demoralizing. Think about it this way. If a visitor visits your classroom, is there any student who feels a sense of panic or shame? And I'm pretty burdened about this. Is there any student who hopes that you, the visitor, doesn't walk around the room and look at the charts and the graphs? I think we need to be careful that we're not punishing the struggling student and kind of glorifying the good student. I'm not saying all charts are bad, but charts where they 
compete against themselves rather than a standard, maybe is one way to do it. Um, second, third, fourth grade, they have charts sometimes where they are tracking their progress with math facts. Isn't it different to say, well, you gained, but the numbers aren't on there. So somebody has five stickers, and they went from 10 to 15, 20, you know, 30. But they still are making progress. And somebody walking in the room says, ah, they're making progress. They don't feel shame. The five stickers beside that chart might represent 40, 50, 60, or 80, 90, 100. But there's not numbers. And so when you walk in as a visitor, you don't smile at that one student. And the student who has the stickers, but it represents low numbers, but definite progress, doesn't have to feel ashamed. Just burden that as I walk throughout our school, that I don't walk into a classroom and any student say, oh, I hope the principal doesn't take a look at that chart. I mean, I'm so embarrassed. Sometimes students should be embarrassed because of progress, but it shouldn't be coming through in that way, in a, in a shame way. Uh, another classic uh, thing that teachers do is they put a bulletin board up in winter, right? It's snowing 100%. That's great. But do you have to put names there? You know, it's not good for the person who half of the snow is theirs. And it's not good for the student who didn't put any snow up. So if it's just 100% smiley faces, great jobs, or those things on the snowflakes rather than names. You know what happens? That student rushes in, oh, I got one more. I got 15, I got more than anybody else. They're saying it in innocence, but you set it up for them to kinda. And the next student walks in and they know that their name will never be on. So think of that, not doing something that feeds pride, bragging, and on the other side, that will cause shame because of the competition. Expect students to do their sustainable best. I'm afraid some of you heard me say this before, but I'm gonna say it again. We have this word of best, do your best. Teachers, do you do your best? I heard somebody say just yesterday that if an evaluator would come to their school one of the teachers said, boy, I would study extra hard. Huh, really? So you're not doing your best every day? Well, of course not. Who can do their best every day? And we use that on your students to make them feel guilty. And sometimes it's manipulating. So they didn't do very well, and you say, did you do your best? Well, they're conscientious, my best, my best. Well, why not? God expects you to do your best, doesn't he? That's manipulating them. They're trying to be honest. I didn't do my best. Well, you need to do your best. I like the thought of sustainable best. We as teachers need to do our sustainable best. Every day, we do what is our reasonable, sustainable best. We work hard. We prepare our lessons. We present them well. But best as in I couldn't have spent any more time preparing. Well, probably not. Again, if you would know you're getting a board visit the next day, you would bump it up a little bit, showing that, ah, I guess you didn't do your best. So let's be careful how we use that, especially with sensitive students. Uh, we say, do well, try hard, but 
Some will go on a guilt trip and hardly be able to live with themselves if you overplay and overuse that thing of got to do your best, got to do your best. All right. Another thing I think I'm increasingly burdened with is this concept that I'd just like to talk about a little bit. I just did this to represent this graph, to represent student ability that is in any classroom, or almost always. I know sometimes you end up with a bright group that you say, well, we had no slow learners, but let's just say the average culture. Where would you shoot a line if I would say, come up here and put a line where your students are? Average, average probably comes in here maybe somewhere. Would that be about right? Up or down a little bit. You've got students who are hardly challenged or way up. The, the average you know, student is, is just doing all right. And then we got, these, we got these students to deal with. Am I correct to say that most of our curriculum, I maybe shouldn't say this because I don't know what you use. And there's different curriculum. But I think, just thinking of various publishers that are commonly used, it is for the upper average student. Make sense? English course, it's for the upper average. The upper average does well, average, works a little bit. Really good students, they're still challenged. Those struggling, boy, they just, they can hardly pull. So my question to you is this. Do you believe that every student in your room can be a success? Do you want that as your attitude, as your framework? Every student in my room can be a success, or no? What do you think? I want, I want to know. I'm not sure if you're zoning out or thinking. Would that be okay to step into your room and say, I have 15 students, I have eight students, I have 20 students. I want to set up my room in a way that every student can be a success. Well, that's a very good question. Well, what are you doing as defining success? Is success here? Is success based on grades? Does success mean everybody does the same thing and gets graded the same way? And then success is everybody coming up to this line? Is that what God does? Does God expect the same thing from everybody? Do we have anything in the Bible that would suggest otherwise? Tell me. When people gave an account to God, what did God talk about? What he had given them. Teachers, we have one talent, five talent, ten talent, two talent students in our room. And because of efficiency and using a curriculum, which we need, we tend to say, I think they all should be about a six. It's easier that way, of course. One set of papers, one way of correcting. We're fair. Is that fair? Is fairness expecting the same out of every student? Again, that's not what God expects of us. God's not going to hold me accountable for things that I could not do. I think that is illustrated well in the scriptures. Well, this is very difficult to work our way through. But flex, we need more flexibility, I think, in our schools. And I will say, the individualized classroom setting, how many are in that type of your teaching individualized? Okay, so most of your conventional may be a mix. The individualized allows for that 
at least to a degree, in relation to speed at least, maybe not content as much, it recognizes some students can work faster than others. Others need more time. So those adjustments are more readily made. And I certainly don't have all the answers. But I think we need more flexibility. Teachers, we just have to be okay with expecting less of some students and not hold it over them every day that they feel they're under your scowl because they can't come up to it. Some students do need some work slashed out. And just arbitrarily go through the lesson and cut half of it out. You have to be intentional about it. What are you removing? Will it hurt them in the long run? I know review does hurt, of course, but still, is it worth it? Must they take all the subjects? So the parent who says, you know, my child seems to be working hard in school. Yes, they are, but they just process slower. I can think of a couple students that come to my mind, one in particular. Father said, yes, she averages maybe four hours of homework. Her brother averaged three to four. I said, do you want us to do something? No, no. He said, look, we don't have a farm. It's fine. Well, a young man's a great teacher today. He just simply processed life slower. He was very smart. And the parents said, it's okay. He'll get it done. But if they would have said, four hours every night. I mean, we can hardly go to church. He can't do anything but breathe and live school. I think I should have said, well, let's make some adjustments then. But because the parents were working with the child and felt okay, of course I accepted that they were willing to move forward like that. Do you, do you understand what I'm talking about here? So what are you doing to deal with this reality of the difference of ability? We can't do this. I wish we could. I think we can do some of this. We cannot say, let's try to ascertain a student's IQ, abilities, etc., and then if they come up to that, they get 100%. In a way, that would seem fair, wouldn't it? If you do your sustainable best, you're at least up to the A mark. Well, you maybe can do some of that in reading. Kind of, you know, okay, they tried hard. Not quite right, but accept that grade. Give them at least a 90, whereas a student, another student would have got a 75 for that work. There's some flex there, but a math lesson, it's a little tough to do, right? I mean, really, they did have half of them wrong. You're still going to give them a 90? I know we have incremental studies where they must master this material to be able to go into the next. True. So some subjects are harder to flex than others. I wanted you to talk, and I went and said something myself. What are some things you do to try to create some flex and a sense of success, even though this is a struggling student? Yes. where the rubber meets the road now, doesn't it? So the concept that I'm trying to help us to think about, I know there's some very difficult questions as to well, tough cases. They have to be in school. 
they're not achieving. They feel like a failure. It just burdens me to think of children that are trying, but they have to come to school, and then you feel you might unintentionally make them feel like a failure. When I think of this, I think of a student years ago who had some special ed, and his parents were all on board. It's simply what the boy needed. But I can clearly remember him slinking along the wall as he headed to the special ed room. And his mother said, he just feels he's so stupid. And it about made me cry. I want every student in our school to feel like they're under our blessing. They're working, doing their sustainable best, and we're satisfied with that. He just feels, he, he says at home, I'm just stupid. I hate school. Now I know no matter what we do, we can't heal all those hurts and make them all go away. But let's be careful. We're not adding to the pain by the comments we make and the things we, and the pressure we put on those students and just a sense of, you know, personally, I think taking grades up front is one thing you ought to be really careful with. Sure, the person who got a 60 and doesn't and didn't work hard, maybe you should feel a little bite there. <laughs> maybe that's why you do it. Let them pay for it. Well, the other side is a student who tries and tries, but that's exposed over and over again until they just hate school. I didn't answer your question, and I don't know how to answer it. Anybody have some comments on this? What's some flexibility we can create, especially in high school? There's the diplomas, grades do matter. They need to be in school. There's credits being accumulated. You can't give credits on a failed course. Okay. Um, you know, that something, something on the report card and mm -hmm. ultimately on the diploma mm -hmm. that uh, this student was not held to the same standard that we normally apply. Okay. Thank you. That, that seems to have worked well. Mm -hmm. Any comments on that? It, it's hard work, right? And different schools will find their way in different ways. But again, coming back to the concept that the student tastes enough of success that they're enjoying it and they're under your blessing. But yes, we can't cheat. That's what the public school does a lot, right? They just change your grades. They're trying to keep their numbers up to meet the, the standards that they, we, we can't do that. But notes, we do that some in our school with some special ed. We do more of the assessment, kind of writing down the progress rather than generating an actual number grade for everything. All right. Social. Well, this is the one that the parents really care about, don't they? They really, in fact, if the social culture of your school, your so social culture of a school can pretty much ruin everything else, can't it? What do we want? Well, again, these are obvious things, but they're hard to get sometimes. <laughs> we want respectful relations between the teacher and the student. Teachers, I would suggest that most students, and I know some of you are going to say, no, 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 that's not true. So I did not say all students, but I would like to suggest that most students would like a good relationship 
with you as a teacher. Do you agree with that? Most. And sometimes, especially when teachers step into what they know is a difficult school and they can't keep a teacher, and for some reason you took the job back then and now you're, huh? Sometimes teachers maybe have stepped in with a sense of, it's me against them, right? It's me as a teacher against you students. And you're a bunch of bad students and you know, we're gonna try to get this under control. And it sets up a little bit of a cat and mouse from day one. I don't think most students really like that game. You certainly don't. But if you set it up that way, the students will often play that accordingly. Of course students can't always be trusted. That's right. But to start with the premise of I want to trust you, I hope you don't break that trust rather than of suspicion. I think they want that good, they want a good school. They don't always act that way. But if you believe that, I think it at least helps as we work our way through tough cases. And there are some students who do not want to cooperate. So certainly would not say all students, of course not. Every student to feel accepted and respected for who they are. With some of that ties back into the academics. That you as a teacher are setting an example that I am accepting the student for who they are. And we're separating the academic challenges from them as a person. Healthy connections between older and younger students. And positive peer pressure. <laughs> There's peer pressure in your school. Just like a culture, there is peer pressure. It's a huge part of your culture. It's there. What a blessing when it's positive. And those who are not cooperating are on the edge rather than those who want to cooperate are on the edge. All right, well, a few things that I think we can do to be intentional. Teachers must deal fairly and consistently. This is difficult to do, to not allow our personal likes for certain students and challenges to like to not affect how we deal with students. So what do you do with a student who says, you're always picking on me? What do you tell them? And you have this horrible feeling that maybe the whole room is behind your backs feeling like you pick on a certain student and you let other students go. Well, number one, you better take that serious. You really better would. Don't go into a defense right away. No, I don't. You know why I always pick on you? Because you give me something to pick on. I've told students that already, but you better take it serious and take time to think, do I pick on certain students? Now, I know your eyes keep going to that certain person. Why? Well, because there's often something to see, right? You keep kind of, you know, and others. But still, we need to be careful that we're not just then just finding every little thing, and they know full well, had it been this student doing it, you would not have said a word. And they just made a little mistake, and you called them out right away. So sure, I've told students already in a nice way, well, you know what? I mean, if somebody goes down the road and every day they break the speed limit, I think the police is just gonna keep catching them every time. So, you know, if you don't give me something to talk to you about, I probably won't talk to you. You know, I mean, these, these are issues. And in a nice way, try to help them understand it. They're creating the situation. At the same time, be honest with your heart, that you're trying to be fair and dealing with an even hand, 
consistently from day to day and with student to student. Teachers must be observant too and take action with clicks and bullying. Teachers, do you have bullying going on in your classroom? This can ruin your culture and all the other good things that you're trying to get done. Larger schools have bigger problems with this. For eight years, I taught in a fairly small school about one hour north here of here in Erie County. And it wasn't a perfect school. We had social challenges, of course. But starting with 15 students and never having more than uh, maybe 30-some, the dynamics were a lot different than the school I've been in for quite a few years with over 100 students. It's just more people, more bullying, more clicks. Or bullying, should we use that word? What do you think bullying means? All right, I think of bullying as bullying. <laughs> well, I hope that doesn't happen often in your school or you do something pretty radical if a student actually gets physical with another student out of, I'm gonna hurt you. Of course, those things will happen once in a while, but that better not be the norm. But they're out there tussling and taking it out on each other in the football field because, you know, this is bullying. What about in other ways? I found this fascinating as I studied this idea of what is bullying? And one of the definitions is for a person to be able to use their social status their personality to control other people. One place even read where it said, it's an unevenness of power. Well, it felt to me that that is a given. There's an unevenness of power and influence. But when that is used to manipulate the situation, don't allow a student bully in your room. So what game should we play today? <laughs> Everybody. Should we play circle base? Okay, no, let's not play circle base. Why? You look there as well, right? Well, should we play softball? After, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that is the bully of your room. They are using their power as a person to just control in an unbelievable tacit, unspoken way, just by the vibes they send. And when they think something's cool, everybody thinks it's cool. When they think it's a dumb idea, everybody thinks it's a dumb idea. And you can play right into that by trying to keep that person happy. And you're dancing to his music. It's especially tough for new teachers because if he's happy, everybody's happy, and I feel better. Believe me, this problem doesn't go away with years of teaching, does it? Those who have taught years? That powerful person in your room, manipulating people. Unfortunately, we see this in our churches then, don't we? In the youth groups so quickly. People with certain personalities, certain status, and they can shut down conversations, they can manipulate youth groups in unbelievable ways. That seems to be uh, maybe an outgrowth of some of the problems that started young. Well, you can't control all of that. Some people are gonna have more influence, et cetera, and it's wonderful when that's positive, but when it manipulates people, manipulates you as a teacher into their controlling 
the go and flow of the room. We must do something about that. Tell me some things you might do. How do you handle clicks? What do you do when parents say, well, I'm okay when we ran into that recently. Well, I'm okay if my, I mean, I don't want my child to be snobby, but I'm okay if they have a best friend. What are some things you do to deal with clicks? How many would say, I don't know what you're talking about? Let me be honest, no, we don't have this. Okay, just one, one or two, three. And it's wonderful. In a small school, you might have a, you know, it's just everybody flows together, you go to church together, a lot of family, tight culture. <sighs> Count your blessings, of course. What are some things you found to be effective? Yes. All right, yes. Listen, don't fall into allowing them to manipulate you in that way. That, wow, those two got to be in the same team or they'll be unhappy. Or sit close together in the classroom. You have that problem sometimes? Well, I remember going through that. Oh, setting up, this was for 9 and 10. And, well, you just hated to have somebody too far away from kind of their group because they wouldn't like that, you know. It wasn't my first year of teaching either. But that's how it is. They're not, now, don't be so intentional about it that they may never be in the same team because you're just punishing them forever. We can go on that side as well, possibly, out of a control that's beyond what we should. What else? Any other ideas? system that just kind of comes up with random teams, but you feel like you take control of that and still can adjust things. Very good. But I think sometimes, and I agree, you can work too hard to break up clicks, but I think sometimes talking to them, helping them understand the biblical principles that are being violated here of selfishness, of arrogance, esteem other better than yourself. Folks, they are violating a whole array of scriptures when they fall into these problems. Of course, I'm talking about when there truly are a problem. There's good friends. There's social loops that do develop to a degree, and that's acceptable and understandable. I'm talking about the hurtful ones that are arrogant, that are snobbing other people, that are sending out vibes of who's who, etc. We're a Christian school. We do not need to say, oh, well, this is just part of our culture. No, when they're violating biblical principles, we must step up to the plate and try to do something about them, but not be so obsessed with that that it ruins our school. I think some of us can do that where we're just really frustrated by it. We need to be able to set that aside and, and still well, focus on other parts of our school. Last of all, create opportunities for positive interaction among students. In larger schools, I find this to be more difficult. I'll just give you one example that we have found to be a blessing. We take our school on the very first day and we put them into groups. So we have, let's say this year, I believe about 130 students. We will take the ninth and 10th graders and they all become, qualified or not, a group leader. We do this, the students know this, they always look forward to this, day one. They go to ninth grade, I am now a group leader. 
we take all the other students, boys with boys, girls with girls, and put them into group. So you have a 10th grader, maybe with an 8th grader, with a 7th grader, which no cousins, no cliques, and <laughs> you try to work through, you know, making a healthy group, first grader, and then we use those groups extens I say extensively, some years more than others. We always meet in chapel in groups. So the chairs are set up, a semicircle, and they're in groups. So this big boy is expected to have the little boys beside him. Help him find the song. Help him use the Bible. Make him sit up. Sometimes they'll come and say, that's this little guy, I mean, he slouches. Or he, hey, well, you have authority. Just don't, just sit up a little better. Oh. <laughs> it develops some leadership and also breaks down this thing of the big boys and hey, little guys. I, many times, little children will say, there goes my group leader. And there's exchange of cards. We limit the gift thing because of the imbalance that that soon creates. But cards for their birthday, a little pack of gum. When we go on a school hike, it's very easy. We teachers enjoy just watching. <laughs> if they spill the chocolate milk, it's their problem. <laughs> <laughs> we hike in a group. You stay together. What you eat together, the group leader prays before they eat, takes care of those little ones. And I just think it has helped. Has helped. Doesn't solve all the problems. But it helps to break down the we're tough big guys, you little boys down there. And the little ones then look up to the older ones. And we use that sometimes, I don't think, to manipulate, to tell the older ones, you're group leaders. You're being watched. We value your influence in our school so much. Please help us. Be respectful in devotions. Sing. Be respectful. Walk with properly, etc., etc. They have a sense that we have some responsibility to help shape the culture in our school. Well, God bless you this year as you take your responsibility to shape the culture that you cannot, and God give you the wisdom to be patient with the things that you cannot change now. Maybe God will give you those opportunities later. You're dismissed. This recording and many others are available through Christian Learning Resource, the campus bookstore at Faith Builders. Order online at www.christianlearning.org or call 877-222-4769.